0: Welcome to the Indian Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm your host Jivraj and on this podcast I speak with some amazing founders, investors and thought leaders from the Indian Valley trying to direct practical insights to building a startup in India. In this episode, I speak with Chaitanya, co-founder and director of Wakefit. I'm calling this episode Disrupting with First Principles, which aptly describes how Wakefit has entered and taken over the market. A market which was otherwise perceived to be dominated by age-old large corporations and further characterized by offline selling, has been completely disrupted by Wakefit. How was this enabled, you ask? Challenging all assumptions and asking the right questions at each instant. That is, always having a first principles outlook. Five years in, And Wakefit has crossed 200 crores in revenue with a 2.5x year-on-year growth, having served 500,000 consumers across the country. With more than 26 product lines, Wakefit is now by far the leading online direct-to-consumer player in the sleep-and-home solutions market. Coming to Chaitanya, he is perhaps the most straightforward, direct and structured thinker I have spoken to. An engineer by education with an MBA from the Indian School of Business batch of 05, Chaitanya has always had the entrepreneurial drive in him. This led to two attempts at starting up and working at large corporations and startups for almost a decade before he finally started Wakefit with his co founder Ankit in 15. A humble individual who upholds first principles thinking cares deeply about the pain point of the consumers. Stays extremely focused and disciplined in building his dreams. This conversation with Chaitanya was an absolute treat. Wakefit has gone on to redefine how consumer brands are built in the country. Wakefit truly upholds the principle Consumer is the King via its multiple policies to serve the consumer with the best quality product and support. Coupled with this, it has created a unique brand identity for itself. Via the multiple online viral campaigns, be it the sleep internship or the social media rollouts. This forms the crux of what I discuss with Chaitanya as we take a deep dive into brand building, serving the consumer, developing modes, product expansion, perseverance, and much more. Let's dive in to the 28th episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast. Disrupting with First Principles with Chaitanya of WakeFit. This episode is brought to you in association with the entrepreneurship cell of XLRI. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Mr. Chaitanya of WakeFit on the show. Thank you so much Chaitanya for joining me. It's such a pleasure to host you. Thanks
1: for having me here Jeevraj. Good to be here.
0: Glad to hear that, Chaitanya. And it's always such a pleasure to talk to the creator of a product you so dearly love. So thanks for building such an amazing brand. But to begin with, I'd like to perhaps, you know, uh, question something which is very fundamental. And Vinod Khosla puts this extremely well, that no great innovation actually comes from a great institution. So the mattresses industry was not breaking through by, let's say, a curl-on. It was done by Big Fit. So addressing it head on. How did you enter a market which was traditionally dominated by offline selling, which was dominated by larger players? And what was your first principles approach to perhaps address the market, address the problem at hand? And how did you begin your journey with weight?
1: I think we, different people talk about first principles and think about first principles very differently. Uh, For us, it was pretty simple. Question everything around you. Don't take anything for granted. Anything that uh, is there, don't take it that it's cast in stone. Um, That was a simple approach that we took and uh, that also came because of our past learning. Uh, Ankit, my co-founder, and me, uh, we both are standard, run-of-the-mill, middle-class Indians uh, where our parents were either in a PSU or in a government department, uh, worked in transferable jobs. So we as kids have seen multiple different cities while growing up. And then we did the standard thing, uh, finish your BE, Tech. Uh, then worked for a few years. And Ankit directly went into his first startup. And I did my MBA, did my consulting, worked in the US, and then did my first startup. Uh, So I'm about eight, nine years older than Ankit. Uh, And very, very simple. And we tried our first startup. So Ankit's first startup was in a B2B space. Uh, And he uh, came up with an innovation where the cost of raw materials could be saved in foaming by about 20%. Unfortunately for him, uh, a large multinational such as Dow Chemicals was approaching the same problem, but from a different angle. Mm -hmm. So when the same innovation was cracked by a larger firm, it simply became a matter of credit period. Uh, It did not matter whether it was Ankit or whether it was Dow, purchasers were simply looking at what is the credit period I'm getting from the seller. So the innovation itself didn't hold much value. The second thing is, as a B2B company, you don't own too much of a brand reputation. Because you're not dealing with a B2C consumer. So that was his big takeaway and learning from his startup. Uh, For me, after six years, uh, post MBA, nearly eight, nine years, being nearly 30 years when I did my first startup. Within 10 months, the first startup shut down. Um, And then in the next uh, two years, two and a half years, I did my second startup, which also failed spectacularly. Uh, lost all of my money and uh, Ankit also in his first startup he had lost all of his money. Coincidentally both of us landed up in the same Sequoia funded startup. Uh, He used to be in my team and uh, we sort of struck up a friendship because our journeys were very similar although it was 8 years apart. Uh, We had both landed up there because our bank balances were zero. Um, And uh, we sort of connected, ended up talking, stayed in touch, became friends And, and then when he had this idea that the mattress industry is extremely overpriced for any normal consumer. Uh, we d- approached it with a simple mathematics. So he knew the cost of uh, foaming, he knew the cost of labor, I knew the cost of marketing because my startups were in that space. And finally, we said if a mattress manufacturing and marketing is costing this much, why is it actually being sold at that much? It's a simple premise that we explored. And then our first hypothesis was, oh my God, these mattress companies must be making ton of money. So, what did I do next? I went to the Ministry of Corporate Affairs website and downloaded their financials. And the next thing I know, I realized their profits are very, very thin. Barely 5% profit after tax and 10% EBITDA. So then where is the money going? It's costs very less. Customers are paying so much, but the companies itself are not making money. And they're not doing any innovation from 50, 60 years. So where is it going? So that gave us the clue that it's just going in the supply chain. Uh, Distributors, super stockists, stockists, everybody was taking a cut. And by the time it reaches your doorstep, it was costing a bomb. It was as simple as that. So first principles thinking came from basically Ankit trying to get married and wanting to buy a mattress for himself. And then we realizing all of this.
0: Great great to hear that, but you put it so simply yet so fundamentally, you know, if we can question everything around us, that would be spectacular. So wonderful line of thought and great context to build as well. But you know, on to present day now, and I'd love to hear about you, you know, that, you know, let's say, Five years in, 200 crores in revenue, so many clients and a loved community overall, right? And that customer redefining the way people look at consumers and walking the talk of consumer is the king instead of just writing a tweet about it, right? So what are I trying to eye at and would love to understand from you that you've seen the startup ecosystem evolve in and out, right? From business school to st- startups which have failed. So how have you seen the, you know, the ecosystem evolve? And what is it like to build a D2C brand? Because everybody's talking about this buzzword, D2C, consumer brands. What is this? If you can, you know, demystify for us, that would be wonderful.
1: Sure, I think you're absolutely right. I did my first startup in 2011. And <clears throat> so back then Flipkart was uh, just taking off shop, Snapdeal, snap, deal. They were all coming in. Mm-hmm. And if I have to take a look back at what has happened in the ecosystem, there have always been cycles of startups that are always hot so first it was e-commerce then came uh, ride hailing which is uber ola taxi for sure there was a ton of innovation and funding and startups around that copycats all of them then came hyperlocal so everybody wanted to get into hyperlocal delivery from grofers to dunzo to i mean different people approached it differently uh, if you remember how tiny owl, how many companies that were there that actually shut down um, because that it became a fad. It became a sort of a cyclical thing where uh, different companies played a different role. And currently, if you look at the market, edtech is extremely hot. Uh, so every two or three years, different factors converge and sort of make uh, one sector very, very hot in the startup world. But as Warren Buffett says, if you are knowing that a sector is hot today. Uh, which means you're already too late. Uh, So if you look at all of those uh, things, you'll notice that people who are extremely serious about the business, those are the guys who ended up surviving. Those who started because it was an opportune thing, because it was hot, those guys didn't survive. Uh, Because it's never fun to run a business, go through all the ups and downs, uh, suffer through every single pain if you're not passionate about that problem. Because you're a tourist, you're opportunist, you're just trying it out because it is hot. And when the tough times come one after the other, one after the other, as they're bound to, you will just give up and shut the startup. Uh, But those guys who survive are those that say that this is the problem. This is my karma boomy. I will bloody solve this no matter what. Those are the guys who ended up surviving each of those ups and downs. So currently, the D2C thing is very, very hot, like you rightly said. Uh, In simple terms, D2C is direct to consumer where the brand itself is doing its R&D, in some cases even manufacturing. And finally, it is coming directly to the consumer's home without passing through any middlemen. Traditional retail, there used to be distributor, super stockist or stockist, then a retailer, then finally the dealer in the end where you would walk into the store. So three or four levels of middlemen would be there. D2C is bypassing all of that. Either they sell through their own showrooms or through their own apps and websites, or through a single marketplace, which is Amazon, Flipkart, Myntra, Nika, Purple, whichever is suitable for them, they come to the consumer's doorstep through that. Uh, that is, in simple terms, direct to consumer. The beautiful part about D2C is that it has democratized access to products. So a consumer does not necessarily need to buy only those products that he hears or sees on TV or newspaper anymore. Because those are extremely expensive and only really large companies like HUL, PNG, Reckitt, they would be able to afford those spends on TV, newspaper, radio, and reach you and then you would end up buying them. But P2C has democratized it, which means now I can get the word out to you on Google and Facebook, I can reach out to you through my own app or website, or I can even reach out to you and tell you that I have a great review through Amazon and Flipkart and Mindra, so consumers now suddenly have a really wide choice of products. So the positive for a D2C company is now I'm not dependent on cash, I'm dependent on a great quality product. The negative of that is because everything is so democratized and everybody can say positive and negative things out there. If you don't have your game up there, you're going to be uh, you're going to be really maligned in the public space by consumers. Because everybody has a Twitter account. Everybody has a review account on Amazon. Everybody can go and say negative things about you on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So so while it is a great thing for us to reach out to consumers, we also have to be extremely cognizant that building a great D2C brand means you're always on top of every single unhappy customer and trying to solve them. Mm -hmm. And imagine the scale when we are shipping out 10,000 orders a day. uh, Even if it is 0.5%, it's... Such a large number that every day if something goes wrong, supposing delivery is missed by two hours, delivery or installation, one of the products, uh, the screws didn't go in the right packet. It's causing them pain. That's why they're complaining. They don't have anything against us. Uh, It's causing them genuine pain. Somebody would have ordered it because their parents are coming from another city. Mm. Uh, Somebody is ordering it because they're having a baby next week. Somebody's ordering because their sister is getting married. So when we breach those promises, it really pains them. and if I have to put all of this in a simple sentence on what it means to take a DTC brand and build it, it is, you are going to lose sleep over every customer's pain point. Wow. Uh, that is as simple as that. If you Even now, after five, four and four and a half, five years, uh, Ankit and I both start our days and end our days with negative reviews. Why did this customer come here? Why did he get unhappy? Why did he have to write? If he had to go here and write, it means he has, it has pained him. And if one person is writing, it means 10 other people are going through the same pain. It's just that they're not going and writing. So -hmm. how do I identify the problem and solve it? So none of the funding, none of the marketing makes any sense if your customers are unhappy because they will say bad things and they will truly mean it. And that is never good for a company.
0: Wow. I mean, uh, five, 10 minutes into this conversation and I'm already almost spellbound by the simplicity and the direct nature of how simplified you've put this across. Because it's so easy if you just look at, you know, the pain point of the consumer, and if we just are maligned every time the consumer is maligned, and if we can probably rectify it going forward. So beautiful line of answering. Thank you so much for that, Chaitanya. And moving ahead, you know, let's let's dive into a couple of specifics about building WakeFit, right? So, uh, you know, the first question in chronological order, because that would give us more context is, you know, Given that you did start and you did tell us, you know, what was the market hypothesis? Can you tell us a bit about, you know, how did you know that, you know, this is where we have PMF? What was that sign sign for you? And how did you double down on that and know that, you know, this is what we're going to do? Because from what I know now that you now have the distribution channel all uh, by yourself, you have the manufacturing by yourself. And I'm sure you didn't start off like that, right? So what was the thought process like? And what was the market telling you when you started off? What was that journey like for you?
1: Uh, when we started off, uh, we honestly didn't have too many grand uh, visions. Uh, like I said, Ankit was coming out of one failed startup. I had come out of two failed ones and we had barely saved two, two, three, three lakhs each in our new salary. And now here we are trying to start again, uh, put the whole thing again. And uh, I, I don't even know what people around us were thinking. These guys have gone nuts. Uh, but there was no grand ambition. It was that, can we do something on our own, try once more and see where it goes? And for us, product market fit, the growth curve, the hockey stick type growth that uh, say Paul Graham or uh, Mark Zuckerberg or those guys talk about, none of that mattered. For us, what mattered was if one customer placed an order and he discovered us, which is an unknown, completely unknown company with no advertising, and he's ended up buying from us, we better make sure that he's happy. And it was very, very simple in the beginning when there was just one order a day, one order every two days. So one customer and just treat him like a king, make him happy, simple. And at that time, both of us had not quit our jobs. We were just doing it on the side. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, then started to. it started becoming a trickle of say two, three orders a day. At that point, Hankit quit and he joined full time while I continued to work in the evenings and weekends and continue to put money, support, all of that. Then it steadily became eight to 10 orders a day. Uh, And then we figured out that, okay, this seems to be there. Uh, We are one of the first people that we're trying to do. And let us just talk to every single person that is buying. Because anyway, the number of people is less. And we don't have so much work anymore. Because Mm -hmm. there's one or two guys is going to eight, ten guys. How how much time does it take to call eight guys? So we ended up calling and that became a treasure trove of information. As soon as customers found out that we're a startup, they would give gyan. Uh, If they're in our same city, we would actually go land up in their house. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the initial deliveries have been done in Ankit's car. Uh, so customers are just open uh, in welcoming us into their home, giving us chai, uh, talking to us, saying, you know, mattress is all good, but the packaging that you sent, I thought I had made a mistake. It didn't really uh, give me confidence that it's a good company. How can you send it in a gunny bag? How can you send it in a folded a folded format? So the kind of information that they gave became a treasure trove of raw material for us to improve the product. And so uh, that became a loop. We would sell only a few. We would engage with the customers deeply, take their feedback and improve it. And those customers would then go ahead and tell through three other people around them. So that became one, two orders a day to eight, 10 orders to then 50 orders a day to then hundred orders a day. And there was no particular time at which we felt we had hit PMF because at Always somebody or the other was either trying to copy us, trying to kill us. So there was no place where we said, there was no aha moment saying that, oh, we have hit PML. Uh, now we need to double down. There was no such thing. It kept increasing. We put our heads down and worked more. Kept increasing, put our heads down and work more. Um, so it just became a virtuous cycle. And uh, if you, I don't know if you'll believe it. For the first 16 months, uh, we did not have a Google or Facebook account. Wow. So literally no advertising. So we had a Facebook presence, obviously. Uh, We started posting some basic uh, creative posts uh, about sleep, about mattress, spinal health, and so forth. But no ad accounts uh, because we couldn't afford it. And then September 2017, we incorporated the company in uh, March 2016. Mm -hmm. Although we were experimenting from late 2015. August, September 2017 is when we opened our ad accounts and started spending a small amount of money. So I think that true PMF now in hindsight looks like when we were growing without any advertising, that was true PMF for me.
0: Right, right. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to probably, as they call it, grow without spending anything, like zero cac and only organic growth. And it speaks for itself, in fact. Like I can imagine that. I did not find it then, but I would have loved to. And I know that whenever I go to somebody's place and you know, if their mattress is not that fulfilling, I'd be like, why don't you check this out, right? And they go ahead and buy it. So I can imagine that and I can perceive it. So but it's wonderful to hear this. And it does make me in fact, recall, as you said, Paul Graham's one of quotes, you know, he mentions that doing things that don't scale. And you've done that so well in the initial part of your journey. And through that, I want to, you know, interestingly touch upon that in some of your previous interviews, you've mentioned that You cannot go with a preconceived notion into the market. And there has to be a way you talk to customers and listen to them, right? And that is a particularly peculiar thing because... Uh, At the onset, it may seem like a very straightforward thing, right? Go to a consumer, ask them how the experience was. But you, by contrast, have mentioned that there can be intricate details to it. And if we get that wrong, we're actually chasing the wrong code, the wrong ball, right? So can you perhaps throw a bit of light there and what your thought process was and what exactly should be the way that you actually observe things? Like, are you looking for answers or are you looking for behavior or are you looking for, uh, you know, user reviews or what have you? So. I would love to understand from you.
1: A very, a very, very interesting question. Uh, I remember this case study of uh, Nokia coming up with this phone, uh, 1100. I think it had a torch. Right, right, right. <clears throat> and it was like really robust, it was very thin and small, and it had a torch. Mm-hmm. So I remember this case study where the way they came up with that was because uh, they observed. In consumer homes how they were using the uh, phone back then there were no smartphones these were feature phones and so they were observing how they're using it so uh they people would not have good street lights so the phone would fall down then they would have to go look for something uh they would they would in indian cities there's a lot of oil on your hands uh, the grease from the skin and there's a lot of dust and uh, kids in the home always used to take it up and play snake or other games so when they observed all of this, the result was a very robust phone, which was dust resistant and grease resistant. And it had a torch because Indian streets and other places were so poorly lit. So no way this could have under, this could have been understood by questioning you. Because when you question, there are two things that happen. One, the person who's posing the question has a bias or a hypothesis already in his mind. So he's trying to navigate subconsciously to get there. The person who's answering has a bias of seeming smart. He'll be thinking, if I give this answer, he'll think I'm a dumbo. Give this answer, he'll think I'm a very, very smart consumer. I'll seem cooler. Uh, I'll seem more respectable. I seem like I've given it a lot of thought. So that never works out well. That's why consumer research and when people say these many people said this, they said that, you just take it with a pinch of salt. Mm -hmm. True answers come by observing what they say, uh, observing what they're not saying observing how they're using the product, uh, observing video recordings of their behavior on the website, uh, then peppering them with questions, which are extremely open-ended. You can never ask pointed questions. You can never give them A, B, C, D. In a survey, you give options, but when you're having a customer immersion study or uh, just uh, interviewing them for research purposes, it's just going to be a free-flowing conversation. Give them as natural a habitat as possible. If possible, go visit their homes. Uh, and see how they think about it, how they use it, how they uh, what they look at before buying. Uh, I think that is the biggest thing. And f- the reason I have to said that in my previous interviews is because I was a management consultant after my MBA in, in the US and Canada. So there your whole job is to have a hypothesis and you're paid for it. And then here I am as an entrepreneur, failed two times. And third time, I finally learned that I have to unlearn the whole thing of consulting. I have to go with the mindset that I will be completely open-minded and let consumers lead me by what their behavior says. Um, And that's why it was a
0: longer unlearning process for me. Um, yes wow again like this is great i mean like for anybody young who's listening especially for me i think these are great cues because it's very easy to think that you know go out there and ask the consumer what do you want but if they knew what they want then like you have to be able to observe and you as you said you know ask open-ended questions and, and i always used to wonder there's no brian chesky story of how airbnb and they went to you know homes to photograph people but now i do have an indian ecosystem story where uh you both went to homes and you know Actually delivered and went uh, across the entire experience of the buying cycle for the consumer. So love that story and thanks to that, Chaitanya. Moving ahead to again something very interesting, right? So, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurs, and again, this is, I think, if if it is a misconception or not, you'll be able to rectify that better. But the growth versus profitability debate, right? So when you are getting consumers, people uh, in a very, very vague way talk about, you know, just keep growing, keep doubling down and the revenues will follow, the profitability will follow. And there's a lot of jargon around it as well. But you have from day one, along with your co-founder, of course, focused on profitability. right? So can you perhaps tell us a bit more about how did you approach it internally and what your advice in a subjective open-ended form will be also for young builders who want to build the companies of their dream?
1: Sure. I think there are two misconceptions. The first misconception is that every startup has to be extremely loss-making in order to grow rapidly. Uh, Second misconception is that every sector has the same unit economics where you end up making a lot of loss for the few uh, months or years and then it becomes profitable. Both are wrong. In the first question, that kind of a growth at all costs where you sacrifice profitability is very, very well suited in a winner-take-all market where the network effects ultimately drive the success of the startup. So in ride-hailing, for example, there couldn't be 10 ride-hailing apps because it's a winner-take-all. Mm -hmm. There is, it is not going to sustain, not everybody is going to make losses, not users are not going to download 10 apps and compare which one is better. So it's always going to be one or maximum two that's ending up surviving and taking bulk of the benefits. Uh, Then look at uh, a funding marketplace. So if it's a, a funding marketplace where startups are trying to raise money, you will see that worldwide there is angel list. Or somebody like that, which has just taken all of the network benefits. Because there cannot be four or five such platforms where startups are going and registering everywhere. Investors are going and registering everywhere. It just does not pan out. Mm-hmm. So in such a market, it is very, very logical to sacrifice profitability and pour all your focus on growth. Even look at social network. Uh, when Pinterest, when uh, Facebook, all of them postponed their monetization and said, we want to be free. We want to just grow at all costs. That was because of that. There couldn't be two or three Facebooks. Okay. The users would get it, it. was not going to happen. So in such a place, it's very, very logical to go ahead and do that. And that is why people have mistakenly applied that logic to every sector, every other startup, saying that if I have to grow fast, I will have to lose money. Second thing is uh, there are a lot of sectors where you do not need too much capital to kickstart the cycle. However, again, people don't think like that. Startup means I have to lose money. So when we started, uh, it was 2-3 lakhs of Ankit's money, 2-3 lakhs of my money. Uh, and uh, how and we barely scraped together everything. We didn't take salaries for a lot of time. Uh, we just worked on the credit cycle and ensured that payment was happening on time. Uh, customers were paying us on time. Simple mathematics, simple accounting. And we said, okay, we will survive on that. So that got us to 6 crore in year one. Uh, obviously timing was right. Obviously we worked hard. Obviously, uh, because we were the first guys, it sort of helped us in this sector. All of that enabling factors were there. But at the same time, that's all we did. Simple uh, running the company in a fundamental solid way. Uh, and the reason we did that was, again, we had been in funded uh, startups as employees. Uh, we had seen other companies blowing through hundreds of clothes in six months. This was the crazy boom time of 2015 to seventeen startups were raising hundreds and cro- hundreds of crores and blowing through it in about six to seven months just to get to the next milestone. So we said, boss, we don't want to be dependent on VC money for survival because finally after so many failed attempts, one company has worked. Now we don't want to risk its existence by making it dependent on VC money. So, so that made us say that, okay, let's run it through internal accruals. And whenever, if at all, we get successful in raising funding, we will use that purely as jet fuel to do what we've been doing well. Um, And that is why the growth versus profitability was never a debate between us. Uh, And uh, thankfully, the investors that have come in, the board that has been there with us, uh, they've been supportive of our uh, vision
0: that we want to build it this way. Very glad to hear that. And it's very evident as well that, you know, uh, you've not compromised on speed. And that's, that's a misconception that is there, right? If you choose profitability, it's not like it's a trade off, right? You have gone ahead with both in, in this case, and you've done it very well. So that's a great pointer. And again, you've, you've laid it out in the most sublime manner I could think of. So uh, glad to hear that. Moving ahead to, so this is going to be the next five minutes are going to be my favorite because I am a true fan of your consumer service and you living up to the entire face customer is the king. So I'd love for you to probably, you know, in the most practical sense of it, lay down the different things you've done, because I'm aware that, you know, there's a hundred day warranty. Then there are other things like you go on the website. There is an entire survey on how well are you sleeping, right? And there are so many different things that you've done over the years, the sleep internship, a multiple different ads. So it'd be great to probably, if you can you know lay down a framework for the audience as to how you've approached it, we understand that it's a huge emphasis, probably the top of priority for you as a company but how have you approached it in practicality and what's been the iterative process like, you know, after each step, what have you observed and then maybe, you know, gone ahead and done something different again. So that'd be great to hear.
1: Sure. Maybe the sleep internship and other brand related activities we can talk uh, separately. But the customer is king, what you asked is very, very uh, close to our heart. Uh, uh, I think people just simply think that customer is king means just follow everything that they say. Uh, Whether they're being reasonable, unreasonable, whether they're abusive, Uh, people think that just follow anything. That is what the meaning of that is. But in fact, it is not. Uh, And most rules are made for the 1% of customers who are bad actors. Mm -hmm. And because of those rules, 99% of genuinely good customers suffer. Wow. How many people actually misuse your returns policy? How many people actually misuse your warranty policy? Very few, right? They're all normal, middle class, just like us. So they'll buy it. They'll start using it. They'll be happy. Their kids spend time on it. They spend time on it. They're just a happy family, normal, very normal middle class people. But there are these 1% or half a percent of people who misuse it. They'll shout at you, they'll use abusive words, they'll um, completely order two, three products and return it at the end of the 99th day. Uh, They'll do all of those things. But if you make rules for everybody, based on the behavior of this 1%, you're getting normal people also to suffer. So we said, yes, there are going to be unreasonable customers. Yes, there are going to be completely unhappy customers who are not unhappy for our reasons, but whatever is going on in their life. Uh, people who are abusive people who don't treat us with respect but it's okay let us ignore them Uh, as a brand we have to face it we cannot uh, do anything to that and we just hope that they get better we wish them the best and we move on we take that as a hit but the remaining 99 customers are in our hand what can we do to do make them happy can we give them promised edd uh, expected delivery date can we achieve that Can we give, when we give them a warranty, can we actually truly honor that? Can we give, when we say hundred day trial and this person has used it and genuinely it has started coming apart. The stitching is coming apart or the zipper has come off. It is wonderful. Under the trial policy, we have to honor it. Mm -hmm. So these, when you find out and when you talk to people, you'll be amazed at how simple and normal and genuine their concerns are. So customer is king for us is that identifying these genuine customers and making them happy no matter what. Identifying these unreasonable customers and letting them go uh, with the best wishes. That is customer is king for us.
0: Wow. Wow. That's again put in such a simplified manner that it's great because if we can all recognize this, because as you said, we dominate and we behave according to the worst, but we have to focus on you know the generalized, which is the good crowd. And, and it's great to hear that ideology. Furthermore, again, you have another great principle, which I caught off one of your interviews. Uh, in The fact that, you know, you mentioned that when you were shutting down your second startup, you mentioned that you made sure that all of your employees actually got another job. And that was one of your pivotal roles while shutting it down, right? And that's something which people don't talk of, right? People can talk about, you know, what I learned, what I didn't and things like that, consider it as a failure, success, things like that. But this was something that I saw a lot of empathy in, right? And it goes to show that when I was in, you know, coordination with the PR heads of your team, they were replying to my emails at 1130 as well, which is not what you see from, you know, most employees. So what I'm trying to now add is, how do you look at employee success? Uh, we can go into like hiring a later time, and we can go into other things a later time, if at all. But how do you look at employee success within the company? What are the some of the things that you are doing with your co-founder to make sure that the Experience in Wakefit is very comprehensive for employees working there. Got it.
1: I think uh, all of us are looking for a purpose in life, uh, which is beyond money. And uh, if it is just money, and that is what keeps you in a job, and that's what makes you get up and go to work every day, it's not really a fulfilling life. Uh, and it means that uh, you you are not really living up to your full potential as a as a human being um, so if you have that purpose in life nobody needs to tell you to take responsibility nobody needs to say wake up and do this or respond at late at night i have not told my team to respond at eleven thirty. i have i i when there is a sale event i don't tell my team to respond to customer tickets till 3 a.m they do it nobody tells them and th- those days they suffer because they see the customer suffering Uh, those days they are on that dream because we are on building a dream of a company saying that can we make this a truly transformative company that lives beyond us so that is the vision that is the ambition you cannot put a revenue number to it you cannot put a fundraise number to it i cannot say at one billion dollars revenue i will be happy so what happens when you get there will you lose your motivation that's a that's a very limited way of thinking If you really have to uh, open your horizons and uh, put those goals, it is building a company that will truly outlast you, Uh, building a company that can become an institution where anybody who wants to leave WakeFit, leaves happily and says, I was part of that company during that phase. So when somebody resigns, uh, I touch wood, uh, most of my core team has just remained throughout. But if somebody does leave, I always say, are you happy leaving? Is that better opportunity better? then please go ahead. I will support it. I will give you my reference letter. Because if you're, there's no point holding them back just by offering a little bit money, a little bit new role, because if they're unhappy, they're unhappy. Um, so this vision is not for them. It's okay. Uh, so our idea is that, so employee success is, can you give them that dream and a vision? And then can you give them the autonomy to execute within the, within their complete unlimited means to achieve that? And can they become better and better people every year? The same core team, four years ago, how they were and how they are now, it makes me proud when they get married, they take a car loan, um, they build a new house, they book an apartment, uh, they go out and win an award in a marketing conference. Uh, That makes me proud. So uh,
0: that cannot be exchanged for anything else. Wow, wow. Again, if this kind of a fundamentality can be with everyone because it's as you said, you know, you're building a legacy which outlives you and you're creating that happy space and giving everybody a purpose, a dream, which is all spectacular, Chaitanya. I'm absolutely loving the line of answering and but moving on to again, again, something which is very peculiar and interesting about what you've built is the brand, right? So uh, there are so many components that you've done well in silos, yet they connect so well in in consolidation, right? So talking about that itself, you know, how has brand building been for you, as you mentioned that you started off brand building at a later stage, or if not, you know, that might be the, not the right uh, way to put it because brand was being built by word of mouth for sure. But how do you look at brand building uh, and the entire concept of doing things right and making sure a larger pool of people get to hear about you?
1: Got it. At the most base level, a brand is nothing but a promise. So... Either you're meeting that promise or you're not meeting that promise. And then people go out and talk about that. Uh, what in common parlance we call brand building is nothing but awareness building. So it's not necessarily brand building. Uh, so the for us, brand building is always, always through every one of our employees and through every one of our touch points and uh, through every one of the uh, promises that we keep and meet. Delivery, discount, warranty. Trial policy, each of those is a brand building strategy for us. Now, to come into the awareness building part of it, uh, we, people are now flooded with a ton of different stimuli throughout the day. Mm. Uh, There was a small study done by, I don't know, I think one of the Nielsen's or one of those research agencies that in a typical day, a consumer, uh, he'll get out, uh, he'll see some notifications on his app, Uh, Then he'll start driving, radio will blare the ads, then holdings, uh, holdings on the autos and vehicles in front of you. Um, And then you get to office, notifications, Facebook, WhatsApp, people are sharing. And then you do the same thing on the way back home. In a typical day, you see thousands of these stimuli where different brands are trying to compete for your attention. Uh, And they're saying, I am better, I am better in this sphere. So If you have to build awareness in such a cluttered space, you have to do something really, really worthwhile that money cannot buy, uh, that ad spend cannot buy. So if you have to uh, do it in a worthwhile manner, it cannot be just running another ad with some more money. It has to be on the strength of the content. So... Uh, when we did uh, the sleep internship campaign in 2019, season one, Uh, when the lockdown happened, uh, we did those open letters where the Bartan Dholia uh, video went really crazily viral. Um, Then uh, recently we did 2020 wrap up. We did Bhadmeja 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is really something that we enjoy doing Mm -hmm. as a marketing team. We really love that work. And if it makes us laugh, and if it gets other people, millions of other people happiness and it is adding value to their life, that is truly clutter baking. So that is the idea. It can be continuously think and work on the merit of an idea, not just start in the reverse way. If you go talk to any other big company, marketing conversation starts with money. They say the budget for this campaign is 25 lakhs. This is how I can allocate this. What can you do in this? For us, we don't look at money at all. Is the... Idea worthwhile, people really talk about it. Will they share about it? Is it adding value to their lives? Why would Jeevraj sitting in a particular city of a particular age and profession, why would he go and share it? So if the answer to that is unclear, then that campaign is never going to succeed, even if I pour 10 crores behind it. But if the answer to that is clear in our head as a marketing team and as a creative partner spring uh, that you're interviewing next time some week, if that is clear, then no money is needed to make it viral. People automatically share it on WhatsApp, on Facebook, on Google, on Instagram. So I think for us, we have looked at awareness building in that way, saying that keep money out of the equation. Look at the strength of the idea. If that works, you don't have to worry about the budget.
0: Got it. Got it. Great, great to understand that. And, you know, understand that ideology to be able to, you know, be at it and look at things differently in terms of uh, instead of actually looking at just on a metric basis. And, you know, what did this do? What is the budget? What will this convert ROI and stuff like that? That's a great way to approach marketing, branding uh, and great line of answering again. Uh, Furthermore, you know, I want to talk a bit about, let's say competition, right? And that goes without saying. So when you started off, you were creating a category. Now you're running for competition and also you're consolidating when you're challenging players, which have been in the market for 50, 60 years, right? So uh, as a brand, as a company, what are the kind of things you do to You know, build moats, as they call it, around your company that things cannot be challenged. Uh, While I understand, like from the outside, it can seem like a loyal consumer base is something that is always there, there is trust, there is a community factor. All of these things are there. What's the internal model like to make sure that, you know, uh, we strive ahead and we keep doing what we do best?
1: Uh, so it would be foolish not to look at your competitive landscape, but I would say that it would be equally foolish if you base a lot of your decisions on based on the competitive landscapes behavior, uh, because then where is your identity? Uh, what, what do you stand for? What is dear to your heart, which you will never sacrifice no matter what? Uh, so that is how truly great companies get built. Uh, Amazon stands for widest possible selection at the most affordable price point. They will do anything to achieve that. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You look at uh, Xiaomi, really, really high-end specifications, but a super affordable price point. Uh, So they stand for it. And there were other companies in the same price point. There were other companies doing similar service. But these companies stood out because that was their identity. And identity is something that you cannot put on a show for. You put, if you're putting on a show and behaving like it is your identity, sooner or later, that face or mask is going to come off. It's very tough to maintain a facade if you don't really believe it. Finally, you'll, if you, you're talking customer-centric, customer-centric, and internally, if your Slack messages and chat messages show that, this customer, uh, let him go right, whatever, I will, I will take him to court. So if you're truly saying it, that means every aspect of your behavior, whether Somebody goes and posts your Slack messages outside in public. Somebody takes screenshots of your WhatsApp. Somebody secretly records your phone calls. Nothing should matter to you because you're truly the same everywhere. You're truly saying and behaving the same way everywhere. I think that would be the philosophy of building a mode. And for us, that would be if we are a pioneering D2C company in an industry that has completely non-standardized products, it better mean that we are constantly pushing the boundary on better products at lower price points. Nobody is asking us to improve the product. Nobody is asking us to drop the prices. But we are doing it on our own accord because that is true to us. And no matter what, we will continue to do that. And no matter what, Ankit and I will continue to see negative reviews and lose sleep over it. Uh, So simple things, right? That, who will copy it? How will you copy it? So some other competitors will find other modes, or other DNA. That's their prerogative. You have to be aware of your competitive landscape, but stay true to who you are as an identity.
0: Right, right, right. Wonderful to hear that. And I have one last question on, let's say, WakeFit, and then we'll move to a final segment where we can conclude uh, while we talk about a bit about you, right? So, uh, this is in regards to a uh, product expansion, right? So, you started off with mattresses, from what I can gather, and there are a wide range of uh, sleep wellness uh, products. That's what the company stands for, and WakeFit as I know it is a sleep solutions company, right? So when you're rolling out new products, uh, is there like an internal, let's say roadmap to let's say approach it, you know, how how much of it is actually iterative and prototyping and pilot testing within the company? Then how do you exactly go about a rollout? Is it, you know, let's go after the entire market all at once, or let's go after the existing consumer base, like, you know, these, these fundamental things that might be, uh, you know, seeming very, complex from the outside, and it will be great if you can give us an internal look of the same.
1: Sure. Actually, in the last 12 months, we have evolved into becoming a sleep and home solutions provider, Right. Right. Uh, which mm-hmm. means now we have uh, sofas, wardrobes, nice. coffee tables, uh, beds, bedside tables. Uh, soon, uh, dining tables will also be launched. Nice. Uh, and this whole thing is already forming a substantial chunk of our monthly revenue. Right. Uh, so uh, the philosophy of lo- identifying a space and launching a new product has always been the same uh, which is can you look at a product that is out there find a place where you can improve it ergonomically scientifically engineer in an engineering manner and can you do it at a better price point while being profitable so the simple rules uh, so we, for example we would never get into a product which is which is going to be one lakh rupee a product and we will sell five of them a day. Really high margins, uh, very profitable. I don't think that excites us as a company. Uh, so can we find that space where we can serve millions and millions of people by improving something that is already there, but at a better price point while remaining profitable? If mm. the answer is yes, we get into that space. And obviously it has to be in aligned spaces. We would not get into food. We would not get into hyperlocal uh, we would uh, get into our home space. So anything around bedroom, sleep, home, uh, anything that improves the quality of life at home, uh, we would love to expand into. And that's the framework or lens that we apply on the next white space. And we have a lot of plans for the coming uh, years also, but all of it is based on data. And what parameters I just now told you has data and mathematics behind it. Is there enough demand? If yes, how do we make that product better? Go down to the costing level and raw material level, backward integration level. And once that costing is proven, can we do it at a price point where we are still profitable? And the answer to all three mathematics answers, uh, questions is yes. Then yes, the answer is to launch it.
0: Wow, great, great. Glad to hear that again. And that exhibits, you know, again, first principles thinking and approaching it in a very methodological manner. So wonderful to hear that. And that line of answering was wonderful. Now moving to, you know, let's say you, and let's talk a bit about you as a founder and how things have progressed for you, right? So at the very, you know, basic level to set context, what kind of a founder are you, right? You know, are you the one that keeps hustling? Are you the one that is a complete team member who are you, who's always brainstorming? Are you the administrator? Are you the angry boss? What is it like for you in office and beyond? And and what's life as a founder for you at WakeFit?
1: I hope uh, when I describe myself, I hope my team also aligns with what I'm saying and they don't have a very different view of who I am. And I hope I am self-aware enough to see the positives and the negatives in myself. Uh, I think uh, I try to be as calm as possible and uh, as clear-headed as possible because the responsibility as a founder is that if you as a founder, uh, you'll be confused. As a founder, there are no clear answers and you're constantly making decisions based on partial data. Mm -hmm. But if you translate every one of those confusions onto your team, uh, it becomes a big whiplash effect. So Mm -hmm. confusion is very small in your head, uh, but you're dealing with 20 such things. Your direct reports take it up and amplify it by about 10-15%. They then amplify that confusion to their respective teams by another 20-25%. Finally, when it goes down to the junior most person in the company, they don't know what the hell they are doing on a daily basis. So I've seen this happen uh, in startups that I have worked, in startups that I have seen, startups that I have read, startups that I have invested in. Uh, So when I say I I try to be calm and clear-headed, it is because I am trying to absorb all of this confusion, all of these questions. And trying to come up with as clear thought processes and answers as possible and ensure that the team has a clear vision the team has a clear goal we might change the paths to get to the vision but the vision should not change they should not feel that we are constantly confused about their existence itself uh, that is a very bad place to be as an employee a very bad place to be as a direct report uh, and a very bad place to be as a person who's chasing a dream then it feels like what is what is the purpose of my life Uh, So I think I try to be that to the best extent possible, as calm and as clear headed as possible. Uh, That hopefully will help the company as well as uh, the team that I work with.
0: Right, right. Glad to hear that. And I think it's very exhibitory and explanatory because through the interview itself, like I've had such a treat an understanding so plainly and in a clean way what you've been trying to communicate. uh, And the calmness is also something that exhibits. So so really glad and some wonderful traits there. In the next question, I want to understand that, you know, as a founder, I'm sure there are a lot of administrative troubles as well. And there's a long priority list, right? because there's so much on your plate, essentially, right? You're managing the organization, you're looking at reviews, you're looking at sales, you're looking at metrics, and you have to report to investors, a lot of different things that may or may not apply to you. But what I essentially want to understand from you that, you know, at the stage where you are, where you have crores in revenue and you're scaling the organization up as well, how do you essentially prioritize and what do you keep your eye on no matter what? I understand that consumer is what you keep your eye on, but beyond that as well, how does your priority list reflect and how do you go about deciding that this is something I need to focus on more than the others? And how do you keep innovating even at scale? Because uh, you might get subject to let's say a manual process, a process of winning, right? That also in its sense is non-innovative in nature because once you get in it, you're just winning, but you're not winning uh, asymmetrically, right? So if you can probably throw some light on that, that'd be wonderful.
1: Sure. I'll talk about the two aspects. Uh, uh, The second one is uh, innovation. How do you uh, remain innovative? And the first one is uh, prioritization framework. So as the company becomes bigger and bigger, the one thing you're going to realize is no matter how superhuman you think you are as a founder, uh, there is no way you can do a good job of prioritizing and taking all the decisions that need to be taken on a daily basis. So the really scalable answer to that is explain the dream uh, to your team, get them on board to that team on that dream. And once you get them on board, give them broad guardrails saying that we can never treat a customer like this. We can mm-hmm. never go back a promise that we have made. Uh, uh, we would never think uh, of solving a problem first with money. It has to be solved with brain power. Uh, simple guardrails and then let them take the decisions. And when they do make mistakes, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, it's the cost of growing the company. Um, so uh, if thousands of decisions have to be taken, it means you have to get the team to take those decisions. You cannot take all those decisions and invariably they will make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So if the mistakes are not repeated, if the mistakes don't preach the fundamental principles of the company, then it's okay. Uh, teach them the lesson and move forward. If they're breaching the fundamental principles, then maybe it is time to part ways because they're not part of this decision. They're not part of the dream that you're trying to build. Uh, So prioritization is always that. And uh, I also try to carve out one and a half to two hours and every day as difficult as it is to simply do what I call deep thinking. Uh, Is there a way, and I'm very old fashioned. I use a fountain pen, I use a book. So is there a way that without distraction, I can just sit and, write a few points, uh, solve things that are bothering me Uh, because when you're working on the laptop or on the phone, there's constant notifications, there's constant distractions, somebody's calling you. So can you find those uh, windows of time where you're just thinking uh, about the company, about the problems, because that is where ultimate solutions come from. So that's how I look at and do the really deep thinking ones on your own uh, and ensure that the team is taking those decisions. I think that's a combination that works for me. In terms of innovation, I told you that we would love to build a company that outlasts us. And so uh, in, lot of, in the initial years, a lot of the innovative decisions, thinking, which products to launch, what policies to do, were all uh, coming from us. Um, but now we are very fortunate to have a very uh, loyal and core team uh, in finance, in growth, uh, in marketing, in technology. Uh, in operations, in production, logistics. Uh, And so from now on, the innovative ideas have to come from everywhere in the company. You cannot run an innovation day where one day everybody will think about innovation. Uh, You cannot run an innovation competition. You cannot say innovation can come only from certain seniority people. All of that is nonsense. Innovation can come and should come from everywhere across the company because those are your arms and legs Those are the people who are constantly talking to customers. So uh, if you don't ignore those signals, you will automatically be an innovative company. If you ignore those symptoms or you take those symptoms, but put them into a preconceived hypothesis that we initially talked about, then both of those are big red flags. Uh, Even though I have run run the company for five years, the first thing that Ankit and I say is, yes, we don't know this. If customers are behaving like this or saying this, let us go down to the bottom and see what it is. I will not say this is why they are behaving like this. I know I am from here from five years. That's nonsense. Those are the two things, uh, sort of a beginner's mindset in what you do and ensuring that ideas across the company keep bubbling over. Uh, Those are the two ways in which you probably can remain relevantly innovative, not innovation for the sake of innovation.
0: Wow. Again, that's awesome to hear. And, you know, you use the word beginner's mindset and that's so spectacular to hear because I am sure like founders can tend to also get overwhelmed and, you know, uh, the know-it-all attitude can be there. But it's great to see that you're constantly learning and you're constantly, you know, giving others a chance. And it's not just centered around you or Ankit. It's the dream. It's the entire company, the entire organization. And you're speaking like a true, true founder. And I'm sure it's like a testament to the amazing journey. Uh, my second last question is in terms of, you know, one of your quotes again, like if I may quote you, you, you mentioned that, you know, people underestimate what it takes to build a company. Uh, along the lines of you know the the hard work that goes into it and I'm sure there are days which you are not feeling as motivated or at least there were right because given the scale you've now achieved I hope and at least it looks from the outside that things are still under control and I'm sure the pathway is great to go but how do you cope up with those internal you know initial pitfalls that exist and how do you go about uh choosing your way wisely then and not giving up but still going towards what you want to achieve especially given that you had two not so great starts to your career or to the entrepreneurship spectrum
1: i think different people deal with it differently it's a function of their own personality Uh, some people choose to have mentors uh, some people choose to have coaches uh, some people choose to have a very close founder network they're all in a similar space of journey. They might be in different sectors, but they exchange notes. They meet for a beer, they meet for breakfast, they go on a bike ride. And different people have different ways of dealing with this. Uh, For me, it was uh, reading and uh, walking. I think uh, I I must have gissowed enough number of shoes, walking and thinking about my startups. I must have uh, read hundreds of books, because I think the answers are always out there. Uh, you just need to know where to look and how to look. And I've always been fortunate to have friends and people and well-wishers and Twitter lists uh, sort of recommend the right podcasts, right books, right people to follow. Because the answers lie there. You just have to open up your mind to uh, say that, ha, this problem ke liye what this guy is saying might fit. Uh, so that we, we sort of uh, ignore the subconscious power of the brain. And it's always processing. It's always thinking. And the more raw material you give uh, from other journeys, other best practices, what has worked, what has failed, uh, it automatically comes up with the answer. So you need to, uh, that's how I work. I'm not saying this is for everybody. Uh, So this reading and processing and thinking and walking sort of helps me. Uh, And that's how I deal with it. Uh, But yes, you're absolutely right. In my previous startups, as well as the early days of WakeFit, the journey can be lonely. Uh, where the pitfalls seem very, very uh, big and uh, the successes can seem very, very transitory. Uh, so so it, those are tough times. So you find your own answer to how you overcome it. But uh, it's very, very important that you also safeguard your mental health. Uh, it's rare and interesting that you're asking this question. So I love it. Uh, founders, I, I cannot overstate the importance of taking care of your mental health because there are going to be really uh, jubilant times and there are going to be really depressing times. Uh, And sometimes they they don't come in the same cycle. They come one after the other. And uh, you need to build that resilience. You need to have the support system. You need to have a way to deal with it and process with it, no matter what. Uh, That suits your personality. But I would recommend that strongly.
0: Wow, again, great pointer there and a great note that you know, you can't sacrifice like it's not supposed to be all hustle, all work. And you you can't go mad over your dream, there has to be a process to it. You can figure it out by yourself, but you have to and it's great how your product also helps that because one of the things that I find really attractive is, it's not just a commodity, right? It's a commodity that makes life better. Uh, and I've seen you mention how sleep is a very important factor, which we all again, let go and we it, it's a cool thing to say that I I sleep only five hours, I don't sleep well, I'm working for 20 hours, but it shouldn't be that way. And I love the emphasis on it. Uh, also, side note, I love the fact that you mentioned about podcasts, uh, that you know, that can help you and give you answers, because I guess that's the aim of me being able to create this as well. And it's glad you feel that way as well reinforces the belief. Um, for the last question, Chaitanya, this has been fairly, I mean, this has exceeded all expectations for me and I've loved the entire episode to a great extent. I wouldn't be able to do justice to summarizing it, but uh, for the lack of, a you know, uh, let's go with a stereotypical ending where I would love to understand from you and get some parting lessons from you because from what I can gather, it's been a great career and I'm sure it's going to be an awesome one even going ahead. But if you can, let's say, you know, go back 20 years and tell yourself something uh, and take that same analogy to tell the 20 year old something of the current generation, uh, something from your years of experience, what would that be? Uh, It'd be very, very interesting to know.
1: I don't know. When I think back, I don't think I would change much with my life because um, every single failed attempt at career, personal level, Uh, Every single trip that I have taken, every single journey that I have taken, every single risk that I have taken, I think it's all paid off uh, in making me who I am today. Uh, So to think that I could give advice to my 20-year-old self to do something different seems a little (laughs) show-offy. I think uh, I probably would not change much with my life. Mm -hmm. I'm very blessed to be where I am, very blessed to have found purpose. Uh, very blessed to have been doing something that i love to wake up and get to work every day with a team that i love engaging with and uh, and every single one of the mishaps every single misstep every single positive thing has made me who i am so i would probably just tell my 20 year old self that don't worry it will pan out right. uh, just keep putting in the hard work uh, this whole hustle and juga and all it's just uh, really been done to death I think just, it's okay. Uh, stop and smell the roses. Uh, it's okay. Read a nice book. It's okay. Take a nice bike ride. Uh, and But never stop the hard work. Things will work out. I think it's a simple thing that I would probably leave my 20-year-old self with.
0: Wow. So, so we leave the episode with the note of hope. It will work out and, and take your time or you know, take your process, but never stop working hard. Wonderful, wonderful way to end the episode. Thank you so, so much, Chaitanya, for your time. It's been such an honor to be able to host you and rooting for WakeFit to become huge, huge as the years go by. And thanks again for your time.
1: Thank you for the good wishes. uh, And
0: thanks for having me, Jivraj. All the best. So that was Chaitanya of WakeFit for all of you. Such a spectacular conversation with such marvelous insights. The sheer clarity of thought and structured learnings go on to show one of the many traits that have been a defining factor of WakeFit's success. Some of my major takeaways from the episode were as follows. 1. Question everything around you and do not take anything for granted. Truly practicing first principles thinking can lead you to places. 2. Asking questions needs to be converted to asking the right questions about everything, be it brand building, consumer success or product strategy. 3. Make policies for your young audience, keeping in mind their traits. Do not let stakeholders who do not impact you directly drive your strategy, be it competition or other players. I love how Chaitanya explains that they made the 100-day return policy, keeping in mind the 99% of the consumers who behave right and for whom we should behave right, and not the 1% negative ones. 4. Talking to consumers is a skill and test of observation and listening. As opposed to asking for solutions. A very, very important and underrated point, in my opinion. 5. Focus and discipline are extremely, extremely necessary to follow through on your vision, practice to achieve your dreams. 6. Perseverance is one of the greatest traits of an entrepreneur, and Chaitanya truly exhibits the same. As he never gave up despite what may be considered to be failures and kept at it till he found the rocket ship, and even when now he has found it, he continues to persevere day in, day out. Finally, the highlight for me from the episode remains to be the simplicity and clarity in the vision eventually boils down to the rock-solid fundamentals on which WakeFit was started. That is, doing right by the consumer and addressing the pain point with a world-class solution supported with overwhelming service. As long as the objective of doing right by the customer lives, it all eventually does get sorted out. That was it from the 28th episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast Disrupting with First Principles with Chaitanya of Wakefit. Huge shout out to the PR team of Wakefit comprising of Vaishnavi and Priyam who have been super helpful and kind throughout the process of successfully recording and releasing the episode. This episode was brought to you in association with the entrepreneurship cell of XLRI. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Do not forget to join the now 1,000 folks who receive all episode updates directly on the WhatsApp inbox. I will see you next week for another episode. Till then, I hope you recall. If you never try, you'll never know. Stay tuned and keep building.